um, and devotion. Uh, John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. Remember that our purpose in this study is not so much for me to um, summarize the work of Calvin for you, but for you to hear from Calvin himself, to hear his words, to be exposed to his writings that you might uh, grow in your appreciation of, of him and also um, your knowledge of the scriptures as well and of the, the way in which God works in the world. Um, remember that Calvin uh, began his institutes with this phrase, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Um, for Calvin, um, these two types of knowledge were intertwined and even depended upon one another, and they consisted, or they, they summed up um, the whole of knowledge um, together. Um, however, as we continue to work our way through the Institutes, we saw Calvin talk about uh, the fall and sin and idolatry and the things that prevented um, true knowledge of God, um, namely um, that humans had blinded themselves in their sin and therefore did not apprehend God any longer as he offered himself, but rather imagined him, began to imagine him as they have fashioned him in their own presumption. This for Calvin was the definition of idolatry, to imagine God um, not according to who he is, but according to our desires and our preferences. Um, but God, of course, um, bridged that gap and, and uh, overcame that idolatrous way of relating to him, and he did it primarily by sending a redeemer, a mediator, and the mediator must be God and man. He must bridge the gap between God and humanity that is created in sin. We looked at this several weeks ago. How, and according to Calvin, God's natural son fashioned for himself a body from our body, flesh from our flesh, bones from our bones, that he might be one with us. And here we see not only the way in which um, God imparts his knowledge to us, but also the way in which God redeems humanity, which is by calling humanity into union with himself um, through his own son. This concept of union with Christ, um, union with God through Christ, is one that is fundamental um, to uh, uh, Calvin's approach um, and Calvin's understanding of, of the work of God. Um, uh, we saw about Christ, God, I'm sorry, Christ's kingly office um, is one in which he stands in our midst to lead us little by little to affirm union with God. And we talked about how in Christ, all of the knowledge of God is apprehended in him. All of our salvation is found in him. He is the one that does this. Um, last week, we began to look at the work of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit is actually um, the bond that unites us to Christ. Um, so if we must be united to Christ in order to be in communion with God, how, is that, how does that happen? How does that take place? It takes place through the work of the Holy Spirit. You might hear many things about what the Holy Spirit does and what he is up to in the world, uh, but for Calvin, and really the scriptures, I think, would say this, that the, the work of the Spirit is to unite us to the Son of God and so to bring about our salvation. Um, it is not uh, found in strange and, and ecstatic kind of wonders, but it is found rather in this work, the work of uniting us to the, to the Christ. Um, because Christ, as long as he's outside of us and we are separated for him, um, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race is useless and of no value to us. He has to become ours and we have to dwell with him. We have to grow into one body with him, as Calvin says. This is something that happens by faith. We looked at this last week. The way in which faith is uh, the means by which Christ is united to us through the power of the Spirit. Um, but this faith is, is faith in Christ. It is not simply generic faith in God 
or in the divine in some um, bland way, but a specific faith and a specific person, um, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, this is the one in whom we are to have faith. Um, however, we, we talked about this last week. Um, one of the things that is really, I think, wonderfully pastoral in this chapter on faith that Calvin has is that our faith does not, um, it wavers, it, it, it can doubt, it can, it can um, not be perfect. Um, Calvin says that believers are actually in perpetual conflict with their unbelief. Believers, not unbelievers, believers are in perpetual conflict with their unbelief. Calvin acknowledges the, the struggle and the difficulty even of the Christian life, life in this world, um, that we, um, we may struggle with our faith, but we deny in whatever way believers are afflicted in their faith that they fall away and depart from the certain assurance received from God's mercy. Um, Calvin talks about a division within the believer's heart um, that it, it partly rests upon the promises of the gospel. It partly trembles at the evidence of its own iniquity and sin, that there is this internal conflict all throughout the life of the believer. And this variation arises from the imperfection of faith, since in the course of the present life, it never goes so well with us that we are wholly cured of the disease of unbelief and entirely filled and possessed by faith. I think that's a really fascinating um, aspect of Calvin's work as he thinks about the Christian life, that faith is something we are called to grow in all of our life. It's not a binary switch that's on and off. It's something that we are to, to continue to mature and grow in. Um, and I think this is really helpful because sometimes in our walk, if, if, we, can, if we doubt, we can begin to believe, well, the, the switch of faith now must be off for me and I must be out of the kingdom of God. But Calvin would say, no, as long as you have any faith at all, even weak faith is real faith, according to Calvin. As long as faith exists within you to any extent, then you have real faith, and you can't expect to triumph over your unbelief. Your unbelief will be cured from you. Um, and the reason for this, the certainty of our faith, rests on Christ's oneness with us. This is a theme we see with Calvin again and again. He comes back again to that great theme of union with Christ. The reason we can have confidence even in weak faith is because we have been united to Jesus, and, and our faith is through our union with him even. Um, we are then engrafted into his body, participants not only in all his benefits, but also in himself. All his benefits have been made yours, and so we must hold fast bravely with both hands to that fellowship, by which he has bound himself to us. Calvin would say, if your faith is weak, then you must cling to Christ and look to him for your strength. Um, let's see. And then to sum up this, this section that we looked at last week, Christ, when he illumines us into faith by the power of the Spirit, at so time engrafts us into his body that we become partakers of every good. The Spirit binds us to, binds us to Christ um, through the work of faith and we become one with him and grow in our salvation. Any questions about any of that before we move into new material um, today? Any questions or comments from, from the material we covered, especially last week? All right. Very good. So this, today we're going to move into a section in the Institutes, which is one of the most practical and pastoral um, sections of the Institute. Sometimes these chapters are published separately um, as, uh, a, as, a, as a book called The Little Golden Book of the Christian Life. Some of you may have seen that before. 
Um, it's chapters, basically, I think it's, it's book three, chapters six through 10 or so um, that are published together, but they actually occur in the midst of a systematic theology. Um, they're not just a book on Christian devotion and life that's published separately, but, but these chapters actually come in the midst of the institutes. Um, in, the, in these um, uh, chapters, Calvin is really beginning to cover um, the nature of the Christian life, what it looks like, um, what its challenges are, and, and how the Lord leads us um, from glory to glory as we are conformed to the image of Christ. So book three, chapter six, has this title, The Life of the Christian Man. And then he goes and he talks about the plan of the treatise in the first section, and he says this. Calvin says, The object of regeneration is to manifest in the life of believers a harmony and agreement between God's righteousness and their obedience, and thus to confirm the adoption that they have received as sons. What's Calvin saying here? What is the, how can we paraphrase this? What's another way of putting this? The object of regeneration is to, to manifest in the life of believers a harmony and agreement between God's righteousness and their obedience. We're saved in good works. That's one, one way of summarizing it. I love that phrase. Yeah, it's one I've used before, too. Um, sanctification is when we become who we already are, right? That we have been united to God and brought into communion with Him. And sanctification is the process by which we become what we already are. We begin to manifest that in our own lives. Jeff, did you have a comment? Yes. Yeah, it's not a good work that we are stirring up within ourselves, but it is something that our union with Christ is, is coming out of our union with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it is, um, this, is, this is confirming the adoption. It is not um, uh, making the adoption happen, right? It is not causing the adoption, um, this growth in righteousness. It is confirming the adoption that we have already received as sons. Yeah, Eric, Pyle. Come Romans 8. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that definitely Romans 8 ties right in here. Yeah. You'd have to ask Calvin about that. I don't know. Good question. But um, you see 2 Peter 1 is there, which is a, a verse we quote um, each, each week in our prayer at the end of the service. <clears throat> So good. So, so the goal of the Christian life, the object of regeneration, is to confirm the adoption that we've already received as sons. So what is our motive for this Christian life? From what foundation may righteousness better arise from the scriptural warning, Calvin says, that we must be made holy because our God is holy. We must be made holy because God is holy. This is the reason for our holiness. It is not arbitrary. It is not um, in conformity to some random principle that God has established. Um, it is, we are made to be made holy because God is holy. We are to take on his character and attributes. Um, indeed, Calvin says, though we had been dispersed like stray sheep and scattered through the labyrinth of the world, he has gathered us again to join us with himself. When we hear mention of our union with God, let us remember that holiness must be its bond, not because we come into communion with him by virtue of our holiness, right? 
Remember the story we looked at um, a couple months ago in the, in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus touches the unclean leper first and then says, I will that you be clean. Um, Jesus touches us in our uncleanness and he makes us holy. We do not make ourselves holy in order to be brought into union with him. Rather, our holiness proceeds um, from his righteousness and his union with us. Rather, we ought first to cleave unto him so that infused with his holiness, the holiness of God, the holiness of Christ, we may follow whither he calls. Um, the Christian life, Calvin says, receives its strongest motive to God's work through the person and redemptive act of Christ. Um, this is, a, of course, a, a scriptural principle, especially in the New Testament, this, this common refrain that the apostles had to call um, their readers into uh, imitation of Jesus, into conformity um, even to his image. Um, to wake us more effectively, Calvin says, Scripture shows us that God the Father, as he has reconciled us to himself in his Christ, his Messiah, as in him stamped for us the likeness to which he would have us conform. So, you know, what is Jesus, what, I'm sorry, what does God want you to become? What does he want you to do with your life? Um, that can be a really complex question or it can be a really simple question. The simple answer to that question is that he wants you to be like Jesus. He wants your life to look like Jesus' life. He wants you to be conformed to the image of his beloved son. Uh, what more effective thing can you require than this one thing? What can you require beyond this one thing? For we have been adopted as sons by the Lord with this one condition, that our life express Christ, the bond of our adoption. Our life express Christ, the bond of our adoption. Accordingly, unless we give and devote ourselves to righteousness, we not only revolt from our Creator with wicked perfidy, but we also abjure our Savior itself, himself. So this is why the pursuit of holiness in the Christian life is so fundamental, because it is a means by which we are conformed. It is, it, is the, the, um, it is evidence that we are being conformed to the image of Jesus. Um, God's requirements for morality are not just some sort of like, you know, shell game where we're supposed to become holy and righteous because He wants us to, and He's going to try to keep us from doing the things that we really want to do. No, holiness and righteousness are the evidence that our lives are truly being conformed and made like the life of Jesus. And they're fundamental in that way. Holiness is, is fundamental to the Christian life. This idea of sanctification, we might say, is another way of describing it. But again, Calvin is so gentle and pastoral even as he says this. Um, listen to what he says here. He says, I do not insist that the moral life of a Christian man breathe nothing but the very gospel. Yet this must be desired, ought to be desired, and we must strive toward it. Um, what's the, the first thing you might hear when you think about this is, well, what do I do about my life? I mean, I think about my life, and I know I'm not as holy as I should be. I know that my life is not as conformed to the image of Christ as it must be. Um, how do I deal with this gap um, between um, the goal and the reality? Um, Calvin says, I do not so strictly demand evangelical perfection that I would not acknowledge as a Christian one who has not yet attained it. For thus all would be excluded from the church if we required perfection, Calvin says, since no one is found who is not far removed from it, right? No one is, it's not like there are a bunch of people that are really close to perfection and then there's you down here. No, Calvin says we're all far removed from it, from the perfection that God requires. While many have advanced a little toward it, who would, would nevertheless be unjust to cast away. 
The Lord does not cast, away, uh, cast us away, even though our progress is halting, and it is, it is as small, even, in comparison with the goal. But no one in this earthly prison of the body has sufficient strength to press on with due eagerness, and weakness so weighs down the greater number that, with wavering and limping and even creeping along the ground, they move at a feeble rate. Now, there's a great picture of the Christian life, right? Your best life now, wavering and limping and even creeping along the ground, moving at a feeble rate. That'll put you on the bestseller list right there, right? right? Um, but seriously, I mean, you can imagine, I mean, what's, what's the visual picture of that that Calvin gives us for the Christian life? It's a guy like crawling through the desert, right? Trying to, you know, make to the oasis or something, you know, but he's just, he's just, he's not running, he's not leaping, he's crawling, he's, he's stretching every inch as a, as a battle. And that's how Calvin describes the Christian life. So what is, what then should we do? Should we despair because our, our, our perfection is happening so slowly or our growth into holiness, our conformity to the image of Jesus, our bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Calvin would say, no, you should not be discouraged by this tension that you feel about your life. Rather, let each one of us then proceed according to the measure of his puny capacity. His puny capacity, in case you have any doubt. And set out upon the journey we have begun. Do not despair because of your, dis- your puny capacity. Rather, set out on the journey that you have begun. No one shall set out so inauspiciously as not daily to make some headway, though it be slight. Therefore, let us not cease so to act that we may make some unceasing progress in the way of the Lord. Calvin would say, um, the point is not, um, um, you know, to move by leaps and bounds and to have these, you know, amazing um, experiences where we jump into righteousness all of a sudden. No, the point is every day to progress a little bit. Daily act of faithfulness, daily acts of obedience, daily acts of faith very slowly, sometimes even imperceptible. It's almost like the way in which fruit grows, just to pick a random example that's used a bunch of times in the New Testament for the Christian life, right? If you go out and you look at the apple tree one day and you look at the next day, it looks pretty much the same, right? But over time, slowly, the fruit is born. Over time, um, it comes and becomes ripe and in season. And that is why fruit and agricultural analogies are used so frequently um, in the New Testament for the Christian life. And let us not despair at the slightness of our success. Don't despair because your success is small. For even though attainment may not correspond to desire, when today outstrips yesterday, the effort is not lost. Only let us look toward our mark with sincere simplicity and aspire to our goal. Not fondly flattering ourselves, right? Not patting ourselves on the back because of how holy we're becoming, nor excusing our evil deeds, overlooking the things that we do, but rather with continuous effort striving toward this end that we may surpass ourselves in goodness until we attain to goodness itself. It is this, indeed, which through the whole course of life we seek and follow. We shall attain it only when we have cast off the weakness of the body and are received into full fellowship with him. When is our sanctification made complete? The resurrection, or even at death, right? At death, our souls are made perfect in holiness and enter into the presence of God. Um, not before, right? Not before. Um, not in this life. But I do want to point this out. Calvin does make it very clear that there is an expectation that you will be growing. 
and holiness and righteousness, right? He, he maintains both tensions. He says, don't despair at the slightness of your growth, but there should be growth, right? You should be able to look at your life and think about yourself five years ago and think, well, I have grown some, maybe a little, you know, maybe not as much as I want, definitely not as much as I want, but I have become a, a person who life looks more like Jesus, who's, who's bearing the fruits of the Spirit in a new way. And so that progression is important. We do want to think about the Christian life in that way, that it is to be a development from glory to glory, um, even as Paul says. Okay, so what does this look like? If Calvin had to choose one phrase to sum up the Christian life, what it looks like to be made holy, he would describe it this way, the denial of ourselves. The denial of ourselves is the sum of the Christian life, according to Calvin. That's what it looks like to be made holy. And I think this is really fascinating, actually, because often when we think about um, holiness, uh, we tend to think about largely things that we're not going to do, right? We're not going to uh, cuss, we're not going to yell at our kids, we're not going to you know, look at things on the internet we shouldn't look at, we're not going to, whatever, whatever, fill in the blank, that whatever it is. Um, that's what whole, now Calvin would say, well, yeah, sort of, but it's not really primarily about um, what your, your, your sort of, um, the, the negative things that you're not going to do. It's about denying yourself and submitting yourself to the will of God. And that is actually the sum of the Christian life. And I think that's a really helpful way to think about holiness and sanctification. Um, to begin in this way, that we are not our own masters, but belong to God. Here then is the beginning of this plan. The duty of believers is to present their bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, from Romans 12. If we then are not our own, quoting from 1 Corinthians 6, but the Lord's, it is clear what error we must flee and whether we must, whither we must direct all the acts of our life. We are not our own. Let our, not our reason nor our will therefore sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us therefore not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own. And so far as we can, let us therefore forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we are God's. We are not only to put off our own understanding of ourselves. We are to understand that we belong to God. There let us therefore live for him and die for him. We are God's. Let his wisdom and will therefore rule all our actions. We are God's. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. The sole haven of salvation, Calvin says, is to be wise in nothing and to will nothing through ourselves but to follow the leading of the Lord alone. Um, Self-denial through devotion to God. Calvin talks about it this way. He says, This also is evidence of great progress, that almost forgetful of ourselves, surely subordinating our self-concern, we try faithfully to devote our zeal to God and His commandments. For when Scripture bids us leave off self-concern, it not only erases from our minds the yearning to possess, the desire for power, the favor of men, but it also uproots ambition and all craving for human glory and other more secret plagues. Accordingly, the Christian must surely be so disposed and minded that he feels within himself it is with God he has to deal throughout all his life. I think this is a fascinating idea, that self-denial means um, that we only have to reckon with God. We are only accountable to God. God is the one to whom we must. And this is actually, you know, in conformity with what we believe according to the Scriptures. To whom will you give an account on the last day for your life? 
Will it be me? It will not. Will it be your neighbor? It will not. Will it be your father? It will not. Who will it be? The Lord Jesus, right? There's only God to whom you must give an account. Only God with whom you have to deal throughout your life in an ultimate way. I think that's a really profound and important thing to remember. Um, and this then is that denial of self, Calvin says, which Christ enjoins with such great earnestness upon his disciples at the outset of their service. Um, Calvin didn't think of this. He got this idea of denial of self being the sum of the Christian life from Christ himself. And you can find no other remedy than in denying yourself and giving up concern from yourself and in turning your mind wholly to seek after those things which the Lord requires of you and to seek them only because they are pleasing to him. That is the goal. And where are we going to find those things which the Lord requires of us? It would be really wonderful if you'd written them down somewhere, right? Where would you have written them? What section of the scriptures? The law, right? The law of God. And again, this is, this is why for Calvin... Um, the, the, the law becomes so important because otherwise we're just going to kind of make up what God wants of us. We're supposed to just sort of figure it out. But Calvin would say, no, the law matters. There's a third use of the law. It is not only there to show you your sin. It is also there to show you the path toward righteousness and what the Lord requires of you. Um, Calvin then begins with a very practical section about what self-denial looks like in the context of the Christian community. What it looks like in reference toward your attitude about your neighbor and how you treat your fellow man. I think this is really helpful and very practical when we think about our own lives. Now, in these words, we perceive that denial of self has regard partly to men, partly and chiefly to God. So denial of self requires us, we might say, to love God and love our neighbor, as Christ himself would say. Um, For when the scripture bids us act towards men so as to esteem them above ourselves, Philippians 2, and in good faith to apply ourselves wholly to doing them good, Romans 12, it gives us commandments of which our mind is quite incapable unless our mind be previously emptied of all its natural feeling. We must deny ourselves in order to do this. For such is the blindness with which we all rush into self-love that each of us seems to himself to have just cause to be proud of himself and to despise all others in comparison. Calvin would say, this is how we are, if we are not denying ourselves, if we have not been brought into communion with Christ, if our spirit is not bearing fruit in our lives, we think this, that if God has conferred upon us anything of which we need not repent, relying upon it immediately, we lift up our minds and are not only puffed up, but almost burst with pride. The very vices that infest us, we take pains to hide from others. Right? We hide our sins from others. While we flatter ourselves with the pretense that they're slight and insignificant, Right? That's what our sins are, slight and insignificant, not really that big of a deal. And even sometimes embrace them as virtues. Right? Sometimes we can even make them um, look like righteousness. If others manifest the same endowments we admire in ourselves, or even superior ones, we spitefully belittle and revile these gifts in order to avoid yielding place to such persons. Right? Maybe someone's really good at something, but uh, they're not really that good. Or you know, they're probably cheated to get there, or whatever, whatever it might be. If there are any faults in others, not content with noting them with severe and sharp reproach, we hatefully exaggerate them, right? We downplay our own uh, flaws and, and play up other people's. Hence arises such insolence that each of us, as if exempt from the common lot, wishes to tower above the rest and loftily and savagely abuses every mortal man, or at least looks down upon him as an inferior. Thus, every individual, by flattering himself, 
bears a kingdom in his own breast. That's a great phrase. We bear a kind of kingdom in our own breast. There's no other remedy than to tear out from our inward parts this most deadly pestilence of love of strife and love of self, even if it is plucked out by scriptural teaching. We must embrace humility. We must understand whatever we have are just the gifts of God, that others um, are better than we think they are. Nothing will remain in us to puff us up, but there will be much an occasion to cast us down. Um, I love this um, phrase here. We should not overlook men's faults, but we should not hold back our goodwill and honor. Um, We should, however we interact with other people, we must deal with them moderately and modestly and cordially. Calvin says, you will never attain true gentleness except by one path, a heart imbued with lowliness and with reverence for others. Reverence for others. That's a, that's a wonderful phrase and has its roots in the scriptures, of course. We should revere the image of God in one another, even as we embrace humility ourselves. Or as Paul puts it, right? Consider others um, more important than yourself. Self-renunciation. So what does this mean practically? If you begin to think of yourself in this way, in a way according to what the scriptures teach and the Spirit's work in your life, it leads us to proper helpfulness towards our neighbors. Now, in seeking to benefit one's neighbor, how difficult it is to do one's duty. Unless you give up all thought of self and, so to speak, get out of yourself, you will accomplish nothing here. For how can you perform those works which Paul teaches to be the works of love? unless you renounce yourself and give yourself wholly to others. Um, here's the, unless you have that heart attitude that, that really does embrace humility, that really does, as Calvin puts it, revere others, then if you engage in works of love towards your neighbor, what is that going to then lead to? If you do a lot of kind things in the church or for your neighbor, if you make meals, if you, you know, care for their children, if you look after them when they're sick, What's that going to make you feel about yourself if you're not truly revering them and embracing humility? Pride. Somebody say pride? Yes, pride. Right? You're thinking about how wonderful you are and how righteous you are and how holy you are. Um, but Calvin would say that's not going to work. That's not going to be a proper engine. Um, if this is the one thing required, that we seek not what is our own, if we live lives of self-denial, um, then therefore... Um, Scripture, if still we shall do no little violence to nature, which so inclines us to love of ourselves alone, that it does not easily allow us to neglect ourselves and our possessions in order to look after another's good, nay, to yield willingly what is ours by right and resign it to another. This is really difficult to relinquish our own resources, our own time, our own money, and service of others. It will only happen if we are truly denying ourselves, if we are truly revering the image of God. And others. Calvin says, but scripture, to lead us by the hand to this conclusion, warns that whatever benefits we obtain from the Lord have been entrusted to us on this condition, that they be applied to the common good of the church. And therefore, the lawful use of all benefits consists in a liberal and kindly sharing of them with others. Whatever God has given you, it's not for you simply to enjoy. It is for the common good of the church it is to liberally and kindly share them with others. No other, no surer rule and no more valid exhortation to keep it could be devised than when we are taught that all the gifts we possess have been bestowed by God and entrusted to us on condition that they be distributed for our neighbor's benefit. 
This is a radical kind of teaching that Calvin gives here. Whatever you've received has been given to you, not for your own sake, but for the sake of your neighbor. It sounds radical, but I would argue that it's perfectly consistent with the teaching of the New Testament and with the Christian um, tradition in general, with the teaching of Jesus. So too, whatever a godly man can do, he ought to be able to do for his brothers, providing for himself in no way other than to have his mind intent upon the common upbuilding of the church. Let this, therefore, be our rule for generosity and beneficence. We are the stewards of everything God has conferred on us, by which we are able to help our neighbor and are required to render account of our stewardship. Moreover, the only right stewardship is that which is tested by the rule of love. We are stewards of everything God has conferred unto us, by which we are able to help our neighbor, and required to render account of our stewardship. Who taught that? Jesus, right? The story of the talents, other parables like it. Again and again, he made this point. Whatever you've been given has been given to you by God, and you will be held to account on how you used it. And the only right rule of how you should steward it is the rule of love, the rule of love of neighbor. I'm going to stop there. I think that's a good spot to stop for a moment. Any questions or comments about any of this, this idea of what holiness actually looks like, what denial of self looks like? Yes, sir. Oh, great. Okay. Welcome. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, it does. You're right. Mm-hmm. Presumptuous, yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. I think it's to maintain both at once, to say at the same time, um, I am holy, um, I am righteous, because I've been brought into union with Christ by the work of the Spirit. I've been justified. I've been All of these things have been accounted to me. And this is definitive. This is... Uh, true. I remember it in my baptism. I'm aware of it every time I receive word and sacrament. Um, and yet, I also look at this reality of my righteousness in Christ frees me um, to look in, a, in an honest way at my own life and to realize all the ways in which I don't conform to the image of Christ and to be totally honest about those, not to, not to excuse them, not to turn a blind eye. I think, I think Calvin would say that we have to hold on to both of those poles at the same time, basically, um, and affirm them at both at once. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's... Sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair summary. And I, that's why I like that summary, too, that Ben mentioned earlier, that sanctification is becoming what you already are, that, it, that there is the reality that you are becoming something, but it's not something that you are not already in Christ, um, which I think is a really helpful analogy for that. Yeah, James. 
Yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah, it's it's pride. Yep, sure. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, that's good. Do you have a hand, John? Yeah, we're all far from perfection. Absolutely. All far removed from it. Did you have a hand? No. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Luann. Yeah, sure. It's not true self-denial. Yeah. Right. Right. That's good. That's a good way to put it. What do y'all think? Anybody have any thoughts about the way Calvin talks about our uh, posture towards our neighbor? This idea that whatever we've been given has been given to us for stewardship and for the common good of the church. Yes, Eric. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, election is not just for our own um, benefit, but for the benefit of the world and God's redemption of it. Yeah, and I, I would just, um, I think the way Calvin talks about resources and possessions and time and gifts and all these things um, really cuts against um, American values in many ways. Just be honest, right? Um, you know, we're all taught that um, basically, intuitively, or implicitly, or explicitly, that whatever we have is ours because we earned it, 
and it's ours to do with whatever we want, and no one should tell us otherwise. That's basically the American dream, right? Um, and this really cuts against this, and I think we need to be honest about that and really reflect upon it, um, that nothing we have is ours because we've earned it. It's all gift from our Father, and everything we've been given is given to us um, for the good of the body of Christ, for the good of the church, for the good of our neighbor. And we need to be very careful um, that we keep that in mind because we will, we will certainly give an account for our stewardship of it. The steward does not possess what he has been given, right? The steward only maintains it for the keeper of the house. And he gives an account when the keeper returns. And that's a, that's a uh, important thing that each of us need to reflect upon. And I'm not, I'm not, I am talking about money here, but I'm not only talking about money. Talking about our time, our gifts, our other resources, um, everything that we have. I think we need to really ponder and think about this in our own lives and how we think about what belongs to us. Um, so, something to think about. Yes, ma'am, one more comment, we'll go. Yeah. Sure. Yes. Yes. Yes, it does. It does. It's a cycle. And that's but that's a cycle of holiness. That's actually how we grow. Is in deeper knowledge of self, right? Knowledge of self and knowledge of God, always dependent upon one another. As we understand even our own imperfections more, uh, we grow in our knowledge of God and our conformity to him. That's the promise of the Spirit. All right, let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, picture of sanctification, uh, progression, and holiness that you call each of us to, Father. Help us not to be content, Father, uh, with no progress, with just sitting back and, and not pressing forward to the goal. And let us not grow discouraged, Father, for how far the goal seems to be um, from where we are now, but rather by your Spirit. Um, fill us with earnest desire to be conformed to the image of Christ. Help us, Father, to understand that our lives are not our own, but they have been given to us by you, and you will require even from us an account of how we use them for your kingdom and for the good of others. Pray, Father, that you would give us a sober-minded reflection on these things, that we would grow up in Christ and be made mature, even as he is. We pray it in his name. Amen.